0: Hear the word of God from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say, life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim to your old eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house, start to tremble. And before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding. And before your eyes, the women looking through the windows see dimly. Remember him before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worry about danger in the streets. Before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper and the caper berry no longer inspires sexual desire. Remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, remember your creator now while you were young before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well. For then the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truth clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So every year my friends and I ask, we have this tradition of asking each other birthday questions on our birthday. And the birthday questions are just some intentional, simple questions. It's what has been good this past year? What's been hard this past year? What has God taught you this past year? And what are you looking forward to or hoping for, for the year to come? And so I recently had a birthday and as I was being asked the birthday questions, I realized all my answers were kind of enmeshed together far as what God taught me what was hard and good and what I was looking forward to Um, the past couple years have been not my favorite Um, they've been hard for a variety of reasons and uh, I've noticed you know when seasons are hard you're kind of up and down as far as contentment goes but um, I've been on like a, a discontented swing the past few months And so um, I've known that my perspective was off but I couldn't will myself to change my perspective um, on my own but luckily God is very gracious and he gives us his word that helps um, shift our perspective and speaks to us and so I wanted to share some things I've learned from Ecclesiastes and Job and some other parts of Scripture so um, at You know, all throughout Ecclesiastes, we hear again and again, everything is meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun, meaningless. It's just all meaningless until the very last paragraph of Ecclesiastes in the whole book. Um, we get the conclusion, the answer. Um, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says that the conclusion is, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. And I read that, and I was like, fear God and keep His commandments. That's simple enough. What exactly is fearing God? And so that's one of those kind of ambiguous concepts, you know. And so I looked at my cross-references, and um, it took me to Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13, which is another scripture that says, this is what the Lord asks of you. To love your God, to fear your God, to worship Him with all your heart, to obey His commandments. Sounds kind of similar, right? Another cross-reference is to Micah 6, eight, which has been really meaningful to me in recent months. Um, but it says, God asks us to um, act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with Him. Sounds similar again. Um... But I was thinking about fearing God and was remembering in Job, at the end of Job, chapters 38 and 39, uh, God speaks to Job and he is just like, here's who I am and this is what my power does. What about you? Uh, And Job is struck with uh, a reverence and fear of God and fear of, um, an, an appropriate fear of God, a respect of his mighty magnanimous power. And so as I've been kind of processing through this, um, God has shifted my perspective just from one that's focused on myself, focused on what I lack, um, rather than God's fullness and God's faithfulness, God's patience and kindness and goodness um, to His children, uh, like He just has such the bigger picture, and all He asks of us is to fear God and to obey His commandments, which are good for us. So, um, yeah, as I go into year thirty, thinking about like what I'm hoping for and. Um, what God continues to teach me I know that I will continue to fail my perspective will continue to shift um, but I pray that um, I remember this this uh, meaningful thing that Ecclesiastes shows us that um, God's power in Job shows us is that God is good he is faithful he is worthy of love and respect Um, and honor, and that this would drive me to obedient joy in obeying His commandments. So, you know, that's it. Just fear God and obey His commandments. That's what we're called to do.
2: Wow. Thank you, Megan. She's actually our children's director. I think she's back there with the kids, but man... God is good, and he gives us his word. And I think oftentimes I get the question from people. Oh, I'm Danny, by the way, one of the pastors here at Waypoint. Good to be with you guys. Uh, Our lead pastor, Lawrence, is on sabbatical, and he left Eric and I with... Ecclesiastes, which isn't that, it's a little tough. You know, everything's meaningless. And then Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, starting next week. So you guys come back for the exciting conclusion of that. Uh, my parents are here today, but I'm glad they're, they're not here next week. So, for that one. Uh, but God is good. All the time. All right. So, how does the Bible relate and help us deal with real life? I, I definitely think that the New Testament letters have a lot of practical wisdom that we go to often. The end of Ephesians, the end of Romans, the end of um, Galatians. We go to the Gospels, the teachings of Jesus. Um, But sometimes we need a little more. And we go to these wisdom, the wisdom books of the Old Testament, and we see the framework that sets up the gospel of Jesus, the good news, and, and even all the New Testament writers rely heavily on the Psalms and the Proverbs and Job, Ecclesiastes, and even Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Um, and we've been looking at Job, and I was thinking about Job, and Job is kind of like telling us if you lose everything and the suffering seems too great to bear, how can you still trust God? That's a good question for everyday life, right? How, if the, if the suffering is just too great to bear, how can you still trust God? And then the opposite extreme is Ecclesiastes, which is like, what if God just gave you everything? Everything you wanted, it all worked out. Health, money, prosperity, everything you wanted. You had all the comforts. Literally like Jesus said, if you gain the whole world, to quote Jesus, what would, what would it be like? And Ecclesiastes and the story of Solomon, which we'll talk about later, explains this idea of getting everything you want. But the teacher and then the author of Ecclesiastes, there's, there's two different people. The, the author is at the beginning and the end, and the teacher is who he's referencing in the middle. The teacher's like, I, get, I got it all, and it's meaningless, <laughs> and it's empty. I'm going to put this wheel up. I showed this the first week I preached on Ecclesiastes. And you can go on the Waypoint website right toward the top, and it says Sermon Wisdom Handout, and pull it up if you want. And this is just an overview of, of, the, uh, of the wisdom literature in the Bible. And it, this, this, is, this, one, this chart includes the Psalms in there. So it's important to see that they all fit together. You can't take one in isolation. You see them as, as a whole... Teaching for the community. Then the next one is this, is, this is my own diagram. It looks like a yield sign. These three books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, all rely on each other. They can't be studied in isolation. They're studied together. I think Americans love Proverbs. And we want it all to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and it'll all work out. But we realize as life gets harder and we get older, like the the teacher in Ecclesiastes we just heard in chapter 12 tells us, it's not always, it's a little more complicated than that, even if you do pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do all the right things. And then Job shows us that there's just some mystery to God and the suffering and we just have to trust him in it. And I think Romans 8 and uh, Romans uh, 12 and some other Places talk more about give us more insight into this mystery of God and how to live in that, that mystery and that tension. And I, again, I, I put these in yellow and black because I wanted and with the triangle. Well, the triangle fits, but because the yield sign. Because when we re, when we come to these, we got to put them in their context in their genre. We don't read a proverb the same way we would read a promise that we read in from Jesus. We read them differently. They're different genres but they're important. And all these books are here to teach us and give us insight on how to live as the people of the kingdom of God. So I'm going to recap. We can take this slide down. I'm going to recap the last two sermons that I gave. And in the first one on Ecclesiastes, I just asked the question, is everything meaningless? And we followed the teacher's logic in chapters one and two of Ecclesiastes. And he says, "Wisdom's meaningless. Folly and madness are all about wisdom. Folly and madness are all about the same. Toil, hard work is meaningless. That seems the opposite of what Proverbs te- teaches us, right?" And then I tried to address what is meaningful, and the only way I could address it is by reading the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, the, t- the author's final conclusion. And I don't know if you notice, but every sermon I preach on Ecclesiastes, I just—it's the same—the same answer. Fear God, obey his commandments, and trust and wait on his judgments. And then, we so there's this word, meaninglessness. In the old King James, it was vanity of vanities. It literally is, I'll put it up, it's this word hevel in Hebrew. It can mean meaninglessness, fleeting, empty, a mist, smoke, absurd, filled with paradox. It's this powerful word. In the New Testament, it's translated as frustrated in Romans, and um, it's only translated a few times, but it's it's this word that the author of Ecclesiastes gives us, I mean, the teacher in Ecclesiastes gives us as he's processing life. Even though he has everything, he's looking at it, and he says, everything is Hevel. Everything is empty. There's got to be more. And then we looked at what does living look like? The teacher talks a lot about living and then death. And how does the teacher see God's involvement in this? The teacher is aware of the covenants. The teacher is, is probably before Isaiah. So a lot of the promises and the, the hope that we have for the gospel that we see in Isaiah, the teacher wouldn't have, have seen. This, his, his view of the world is, is somewhere. He's in the, the period of the king's. And he's in the period of the time when the kings are all corrupt. There's a few good ones here and there. All the northern kings are corrupt. and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, is, most of them are corrupt, even worse than Solomon, who became corrupt at the end of his life and walked away from God. And then I thought, what does this mean for us today? And we looked at these three points, the three summaries of Ecclesiastes from a, a Bible scholar that I Really learned a lot from as I prepared for these sermons, and he says three factors render life meaningless. If you just sum up the whole chapter one through you know thirteen, the teacher's teaching. First, he says death renders life meaningless. The teacher has no confidence in in the afterlife. Second, injustice renders life meaningless. If there's no afterlife, the teacher thinks, well, maybe we could find reward and justice in this world. But he can't find this. He can't find the righteous person. Then the teacher realizes that humanity's inability to discern the proper time renders life meaningless. Just to figure out life. And I talked about the second one and the third last week. But I didn't talk about death. And how death renders life meaningless. I want to look at Ecclesiastes 9. We didn't read it this morning. But this is in the section toward the end of of the teacher's teaching. And he says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward, they join the dead. Really encouraging stuff. (laughs) Anyone who's among the living has hope. That's good. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living now know they will die, but the dead know nothing for they have no further reward. Even their name is forgotten. And this is a guy who achieved a lot. This isn't some you know, poor person who's destitute. This is a guy who's achieved everything. He's just looking at life. I think sometimes in our world, we don't, modern America, we don't see death very much. I remember when I was a kid, my grandma would tell me stories about they would kill the chicken, pluck the chicken, ring its neck, you know, she said her and her sister. This was during the Depression, so they'd fight over the the neck and the feet because those were tasted good. I mean, it's gross. I mean, we think it's weird, but they did, and they ate every part of the chicken. And the death, even though they lived in the city, they actually killed their own food sometimes, not all the time. We're we're far removed from death. When we buy meat, it's already packaged in a little you know styrofoam thing with with saran wrap on top. We don't see death. We. Oftentimes, elderly live in homes that are separated from us. Um, we're, we're much more separated from death. We have good medicine. We have good hospitals. We're much more separated from death than the average person through all human history and many people even in the world today. So I think sometimes we live more like the teacher, like we, we live such comfortable lives that we don't want to think about death. It's, it's way off in the distance. But it's, it's imminent for all of us. It's going to happen. And if you think too much about it, I would say that's not good. But if you just ignore it and forget that it's coming, that's also dangerous, too, because it is coming. I don't think we have to have the same attitude as the teacher, but I think the teacher reminds us and the teacher helps us process it. And I think the, the scriptures throughout help us process it. And for us as Christians, we can look at death even differently. We have no fear in death because of the hope we have in Christ. So what makes life meaningful? How do we live in this frustrated, meaningless world? The world that Romans 8 said God allowed the creation to be frustrated by the creator. An ancient Israelite would look to the Passover and the Exodus for hope in the present and in the future. But we, as people of the new covenant, look to the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for us, and the pouring out of the Spirit. We look at that as our hope. We have hope in that. We have hope for the present, and we have hope for the future. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is often read at Easter, Paul says, but someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kinds of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. So even at the time of Christ, the Jews were arguing over what happens when you die. The Old Testament gives glimpses of it. Isaiah talks about a new heaven and a new earth, just like Revelation does. But they were still kind of hashing it out. And Paul says this. He says, what a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into, into a plant until it dies first. And he's actually quoting Jesus. And when you put it in the ground, it is not the plant that will grow, but only the bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it a new body, the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. And now I'm going to jump ahead to verse 45. The scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes after. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth. While Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Um, Paul is alluding to Genesis 1, but he's also alluding to the wisdom traditions, talking about we all came from dust, we're all dismissed. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will be also transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. And he's quoting uh, Hosea and Isaiah Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's answering the question of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. For sin is the, sting that resu- is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immo- immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do is ever useless. Sorry, is this a different translation up there than I'm reading? It's all right. So you get, you get to use your mind and, and hear two different translations. That's me, I I made those slides, sorry about that. See, God is good, even when I mess up the slides. But what a powerful statement from Paul. Nothing we do is in vain, nothing we do is useless, because there's hope in the resurrection. He's literally answering the question of the teacher. And then at the end of Ecclesiastes, we get three principles from the author, of how to live advice from the old Testament wisdom genre one fear God and tr- and by fear God I'm I'm saying this morning let's think about it as trusting in his goodness and his promises his covenant faithfulness we fear like this this fear is, is a healthy fear like I fear walking out on the road <laughs> in front of a car because I'll get hit any of y'all ever seen a dog or a deer just run out? They don't fear the car, because but we do. We fear it because we know what will happen. This is a healthy fear, a fear because God is greater than us. He knows more than us. We trust in him. We trust in his goodness. We trust in his promises, his covenant faithfulness. And we don't trust in our own understanding. I'm going to put up Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When I talked about the wisdom literature, like most scholars would say kind of the crux of Proverbs is 3, 5, and 6, a verse that many of us have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Amen. That's fearing God. You can trust yourself or you can trust God. You can trust the created thing in your feeble mind, or you can trust the creator who created all of it. Two, the teacher, the author says, obey his commandments. And then he says, wait for and trust in the justice and judgment. So many times we want to jump the gun and bring justice now and bring judgment now. Romans 12 is very clear to be patient on this. I believe Romans 12 is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and a commentary on the wisdom literature. And I want to look at this Obey His Commands really fast. And at the end of this section, he says that God will judge the good and the bad or the good and the evil. Where's the first time we hear that, word, that term good and evil or good and bad in the Bible? Genesis, right? The tree. Same word. Almost all the wisdom literature is going back to the garden. We'll look at that next, next week in Song of Songs. We have a choice before us every day. Obeying God's commands is, is saying, I have a choice. Am I going to trust God with what's good? Or am I going to take what's appealing what, that I know that will destroy me? And the good thing is we have his grace. And we're going to look at what Jesus says on how we can flush this out. So let's obey his commandments and let's wait for and trust in his justice and judgment. Sometimes we want to jump the gun and we want to make it happen now. And it's good. It's, we, we're called to fight for justice. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the big picture justice. Like it's not all going to happen all at once. We're waiting for the day when Jesus comes and he will make all things right. And even, even temporary justice that we need to see on earth, we can, we can wait on him and trust him. Now let's look at Solomon. Brief glimpse on the guy who had everything. So you so you have the Old Testament and you kind of have the call of Abraham and then you have some rocky roads, you know, and the family of Abraham they're going up and down. And then you and then you um, then they have 400 years and then the Exodus, the pinnacle, the high point. And then God says, "I'm going to call you out, Moses." Your people, new covenant, new land. And then they get the land, they get the promises, they get everything, and they're going up, 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 up. They get David. David makes a few mistakes, but Solomon builds the temple. Solomon asks for wisdom. That's the pinnacle. They reach everything they wanted. Every nation everywhere wants to achieve to where they got with Solomon. Listen to what 1 Kings 2 says. As the time of King David's death approached, he gave this charge to Solomon. I am going where everyone on earth must go. Some, must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to me. He told me, if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithful, faithfully with all their heart and soul, One of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. And then in 2 Chronicles 1, a parallel passage, Solomon's now king. And God said to Solomon, Solomon, he said, you can have everything. And Solomon asked God for wisdom. And then God says to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire and you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies. That's probably what most kings would ask for. You ever, you know, the genie, if you get the one wish... How many of you, when you were kids, you're like, if I can get the one wish, I'd wish for all the wishes? How many of you, the first time you thought of that, you're like, wow, I'm really smart, right? And then I found out every kid thinks of that. And all you got to do is be about seven, eight, and you cross that threshold where you, you you know, I thought I was a genius at like seven. All right. Where am I now? So therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given to you. This is verse 12. And I will also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king who was ever before you ever had or none after you will have. Then Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high places at Gibeon from before the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon, so this is, so God gives him everything. Now I want to listen to this. Remember what David said, obey the commands, follow God, and everything will work out. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot city and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore, fig trees in the foothills. Now I want you to hear the next thing. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Now if any of you read the Bible a little bit, you might notice this. Let's jump to Deuteronomy 17. So Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, just six verses, give a few rules for the new king. Like God only needs to give the king a couple, a couple lines. Let's look at verse 16. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Israel to buy horses. Wow, Solomon, where's all that wisdom? Then it says in 17, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. So Solomon starts off fearing the Lord, obeying his commands, waiting for justice, the the things that David told him to do. Then he gets power, money, comfort, and everything unravels, just like the teacher observed. This is the main point of Ecclesiastes, I believe. So many of us, when we're suffering, we're like, God, if you just gave me everything I need, all the comfort I need, then it'll work out. And Solomon's the primary example that what we need most is God. We need his presence. Without God, everything really is meaningless. Getting it all is meaningless. It will never satisfy. We need a new king in a new way. In Matthew 12, Jesus evokes Solomon in the wisdom literature, and he says this in 1242. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. A pagan queen, a Gentile queen. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now someone greater than Solomon is here. And in, in the Solomon account, I didn't read it, kind of like, The queen of Sheba comes, and Solomon does the right thing. He doesn't take her as a wife. He answers her questions wisely. He represents God well. And then after that, everything falls apart. He takes many wives. Says that he had a 1,000 wives and concubines. Wow. Didn't listen to anything in Deuteronomy. But there's this passage from Jesus. He says that when Solomon did right, this queen will judge you guys. This Gentile queen. This is powerful words. A Jewish person would not have taken this lightly. I mean, they would have been like, what are you saying, Jesus? And then he says, someone greater than Solomon is here. In Mark chapter one, at the beginning of his ministry, Mark wants to highlight this in verse 14. He says, later on, after John, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time prophesied from God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe in the good news. All the brokenness, all the bad kings from Saul, all the judges that were bad and all the broken. How many of you did the Bible reading plan and like, you know, we get through every every person and you're just like, wow, one after another, after another, failure, failure, failure. Can anybody trust God? It seems like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are the only guys who come out okay and they probably had all kinds of junk just the authors don't don't include that but the kingdom is near Jesus has come the good news the gospel is God's plan of redemption renewal and reconciliation from start to finish through all the darkness and all the sin in this broken world and I want us to see something about Solomon in Genesis 19 we hear about Lot's daughters. It says, so I'm going back in the Bible, and there's this guy, Lot, he's Abraham's nephew, and he goes and lives in a cave because he's scared. And he does something horrendous. And it says, so both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father because they, they got him drunk. It's a crazy, dark story. And because they wanted to have kids. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ammi, the father of the Ammonites of today. And then I'm going to jump to 1 Kings 14, 21. Um, It says, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, in the city the Lord had chosen. So this is Solomon's son. His mother's name was Nahum. She was an Ammonite. We know the story of Ruth. God redeems one of Lot's daughters. One of the descendants of Jesus was Ruth, who was a Moabite. How amazing. The broken story of Lot, God redeems by bringing us David, but ultimately by bringing us Jesus. But even in the Solomon story, Solomon has a 1,000 people, suppose. I mean, that's probably, it's such an accurate number that It means a large amount. We don't know exactly. But an Ammonite, God redeems Lot's other daughter too. This is the goodness and the history of God. He'll take a broken thing from a thousand years earlier and redeem it. And ultimately, this is redeemed in Christ. And this son, Rehoboam, became worse than his father. They asked him to, to ease the burden of Solomon. And he says, my dad brought whips, scourge you with whips, but I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. He made the burden heavier, worse than Egypt. Two generations of kings, they're worse off than they were in Egypt. The kings are more oppressive than even Pharaoh. That's kind of what the language is trying to show you or equally as oppressive as, as, as Pharaoh. The kingdom splits, everything falls downhill. We can't handle sex and money and power. The best kingdom Israel ever had was gone in two generations. They needed a new kind of king and a new kind of kingdom. They needed Jesus. And we have Jesus. We have a new king and a new kingdom and we have his spirit. So we can fear God and trust in his goodness and promises. We can obey his commandments. And we can wait and trust in him. I'm going to tell two stories to conclude today. The first story I got from Open Doors, and right now in North Korea, there's Job type suffering. They estimate there's about 300,000 Christians in North Korea who must hide their faith and meet in extreme secrecy. They have no religious freedom, and the estimate is about 50,000 of those Christians are imprisoned in labor camps, detention centers, or they're banished to remote areas where they literally have to plant their own food out in the rural areas. One of the guys from Open Doors met an elderly woman who who escaped. And in one of her escape attempts, she was put in prison. Her husband was put in prison. And all she could do was just say Psalm 23 over and over and over again in her head. They killed her husband after many years because he wouldn't renounce Jesus. But before he died... They let his family visit him once and he wrote on his hand because they weren't allowed to have paper, believe in Jesus to his children. He was killed in prison. Um, He never saw anything close to the comfort we have, but he had Christ. He had all he needed. I'm not advocating that we all need to be in prison to be better Christians. No, we want to pray so these people won't suffer. When you are in your prayer time tonight, pray for North Korea. We have brothers and sisters who are in prison right now all over the world. But we can look at that. They can look at Job and be like, wow. But we can look at Ecclesiastes and be like, wow, that could be us. Because we don't live in North Korea. We live in a place where we can gain all the comforts we want very easily. This next story I want to tell, I'm going to put this picture up. This is Charles Clements. He passed away just a couple months ago. He fell down the stairs and had a brain injury and died quickly after. That's his daughter, Jenny, who was, I was her youth pastor and his wife, Lynn. Charles was, you can take the photo now. Charles was a man who prayed for me when I was a young youth pastor. He exhorted me and he encouraged me. He lived a faithful life, just a common guy born in Pensacola, Florida. Had got married later in life, had his one daughter later in life. He loved his wife. He loved his daughter. He loved the people in Roswell, Cherokee County, Georgia. He loved our church. He loved me so much that when I was a young youth pastor, he would just come and sit in my office and say, Can I pray for you? I was an arrogant 26, 28 year old youth pastor. would point out the brokenness in me, the pride, in a loving way. Charles went to Honduras every vacation he ever had. He spent every bit of his money loving kids and families in Honduras. He supported my ministry at Duke, even to this day. A check comes in every month supporting me he lived a faithful life he could two two different contrasts the believer in north korea and the believer in america both people living faithfully where god called them sorry guys how do we live how do we trust in jesus how do we do it i'm going to end with the words of jesus we hear about Solomon bringing the strong yoke upon the people and his son being even worse. And this is what Jesus says about yoke and how we can trust him. In Matthew 11, it says, At that time, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Wise than learned. See how Jesus is evoking the wisdom literature. The Jewish people thought children know nothing. And Jesus, his upside-down kingdom is flipping it upside down. He says, you have revealed them to little children. Verse 26, yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. And this is what I want us to remember. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's the answer to the meaninglessness of this frustrated world? It's to take his yoke upon us and learn from him because he's gentle and humble in heart and we will find rest for our souls. Let's find rest in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're going to take your supper right now. And I just pray that we find rest in you. And when we come to life, whether we're doing well or we're really suffering, whatever the meaninglessness, whatever the brokenness we see, God, that we would rest in you and we would fear you and obey you and love you. And we thank you that we can do this. And we thank you we can come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: As we come to the the Lord's table this morning, I just want to reflect for a moment how sweet it is. It's the Lord's table. Have you you ever thought about that? It's not our table. It's His table. And He invites His people to come and draw near, (laughs) to take and eat. (laughs) And what do we partake of when we do this? In John's gospel, Jesus in, in, his, in the midst of his earthly ministry is, is ministering to people. He's doing miracles. He's healing. He's healing the sick. He's feeding the hungry. And people are becoming infatuated with what Jesus can do for them. But they never, they never really ask what Jesus wants from, from us, from them. What does Jesus want from us? He wants to take up our lives, all the brokenness, all the frustration. And he wants to turn it on its head. He wants to give it back to us. He wants to give us life. This is what he says in in John 6. He says, "I, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. You hear that? You do not have life in yourselves. Where does life come from? Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Do you know that Jesus is living in you and you in him? we have that kind of relationship with him? He has that kind of relationship with you? Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And I tell you, many people heard that message and they turned away from him. (laughs) When it says to eat and drink of Jesus, what he's talking about is walking in faith and believing trusting in him. And so as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, that's that's what we're doing. As ones who who are his children, as ones who believe him, who take his word seriously, who who really believe, there's not life in and of myself and what I can do. But there's life only found in and through Jesus alone. And so we believe that the table is, is reserved for those who, who truly rest in Him, who are taking upon this, this yoke that is light and easy. And so I invite you this morning to, to take uh, of the elements you found at, at your seat. Um, and for, for you at home, if you need to take a moment to, to grab the, the elements, the bread and, and the cup. So may we pull out the elements and, and take together. So I, so uh, Jesus, this is the blood or the, the body of Christ that was broken for us. And as we take it, Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. May we take and eat. And he says of the juice he says this cup is the new covenant established by my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me this is the the blood of Jesus shed for you Let's pray together Heavenly Father, we thank you for inviting us into this meal, for inviting us into your family, God, for, for giving us one another, that as we, as we are learning to, to walk in the light, God, as you, you are making us new, you give us our lives, you give us true life, you invite us to live in it, you give us meaning, you give us purpose in you, and you call us to, to, to love you and to love one another. God, as you have forgiven us, as you are redeeming us, as, you, as we participate in this, this covenant renewal, God, that you will do everything you said that you'd do, that we can trust you. This, this is us walking in hope, a hope that is secure in Jesus. God, may we, may we live this out. May we live out this calling. May we have assurance of faith. May we trust you. May we live in this way. God, may we love one another. May we love the community. May, may our community be changed as, because they are, they are surrounded by people who are being transformed by you. God, we thank you for this work. We delight in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.